Welcome to episode six of the Corporate Real Estate Insider. We are back again. I'm here with John Jarvis, Brian Connolly, and Owen Rice. Today, we are going to be covering a very different topic, uh, diving into details around the analytics of space, how you can use data analytics and uh, space utilization analysis to make better real estate decisions across a portfolio. Uh, we're also going to be talking about similar types of analytics that affect industrial warehousing and manufacturing users as well. Uh, but before we do that, as usual, we're going to be talking about news first. And I know that Brian was hoping to lead us off today. So go for it, Brian. Thanks, Tucker. The The article talks about how retail companies, and particularly um, Abercrombie & Fitch, which is a, a brand, obviously, that's been around forever, but has really come back, I think, back on into the mainstream, uh, and how they're, they're skewing downtown cores and moving, uh, moving their operations to smaller stores within the neighborhoods where their people live. And they're using the data, this article, this, this podcast is about data. They're using the data where people are returning their goods as, as an indicator of where their store should be. So um, instead of a, a customer bringing their return to a, a FedEx Dropbox, they bring it actually into a store, smaller format store, and they use that um, then to, to upsell the customers with goods. Now, my whole thing is this. If the, if the retailers are going out to the neighborhoods to where the people are, if the restaurants are all out in the neighborhoods, and I've seen articles on the resurgence of, of all these different neighborhoods around major metropolitan areas, um, why aren't office owners thinking the same way and companies, our tenants, thinking the same way? We got to, instead of having people come to us, when are we going to start to see companies move their move their offices and their operations to their people and have a very different portfolio? I think the last X number of years has been around consolidation of portfolios. When is it going to go the other way and have a lot more nimble, smaller, and more where their clients and customers and people are um, in these neighborhoods where all the retailers are going? That's 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 what I found interesting about the article that I was reading over the uh, over the last week. I think it makes a lot of sense for these retailers to do it. But when you think about the practicality of doing this for like a medium or large size company in Boston or a national company or a global company, the big challenge with this is that you end up having a bunch of people going into offices to have Zoom meetings with people in other offices. And at that point, it's you know questionable, like how valuable is it for these really dispersed teams to be going into five or six different offices in a metro area versus into one? So like, I think it makes a lot of sense, but keep in mind that a lot of these retailers are going to have multiple stores in a major metro area, and they can afford to locate those wherever they need to, whereas a company may only have one office. And so I, I think like that's, that's my answer of why I don't think that that has happened yet, uh, is because unless everyone on one team happens to live in the same area, I think it's, it's pretty tough. And given that, you know, younger people tend to want to live in cities and, you know, older people that have kids want to live in the suburbs. I think it's really hard to ever get a critical mass and consensus around where that should be. John, it looks like you've got something to add. Yeah, I just wonder if this isn't another uh, example of what we've already talked about, this idea of the changing civic design. This, uh, the, the old model where we, you know, concentrated our jobs in the city centers and we built these high rises. And, you know, as a result of the pandemic and as a result of the hybrid work or potentially remote work, you know, people are doing these hubs. They're moving away from the downtown to the suburbs. They're take, they are already taking the jobs to where closer to where the people live 
maybe doing several offices instead of one aggregate downtown office space. And I just wonder if this isn't happening real time, this changing dynamic of really a, the civic design of our cities. Maybe it's like the boiling frog analogy and this is the, the downtown urban centers are under some sort of a change. It's happening so slowly, it's hard to notice it. Uh, but I do think the retailers are going there because the office tenants are already starting to do that. Or at least they're not in the downtown. It's hard to run a retail operation in a downtown when it's not fully occupied. Yeah, I'll, I'll add part of what might be feeling it as well. Uh, and this isn't applicable to every city in America, and this is not meant to be political, but it's just general safety. Um, you know, downtown Seattle is having a tremendous amount of vacant retail space at the market, not because people aren't coming downtown necessarily. It's just because it's not safe. Um, we have people, you know, smoking fentanyl on city buses, which is permitted. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a tough place. And Nike Town, which had a flagship store um, here in downtown Seattle, closed the store that's been open for over 20 years. Um, and they've left downtown and other retailers have been leaving as well. And once you start to lose those big retailers, the smaller retailers that kind of are there because the bigger ones are there start to leave as well. And my biggest fear for cities like Seattle is what if we lose our flagship Nordstrom store? You know, a five-story flagship store that's been there since anyone's been pretty much alive in Seattle. Um, if they're gone, then, then then what happens? I mean, look what happened to Cleveland, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, Cleveland was a bustling city and and... It's not to say Cleveland isn't a great place today, but it's not what it once was. Um, and that, that was for other purposes and not necessarily crime. But I, I, I truly am worried about cities like Seattle, like San Francisco that I live in and or do a lot of business in, um, where we have to make sure it's a place people want to come. Because if it's a place people don't want to come and don't feel safe, I think you're going to see even more. Whatever other things are forcing retailers to go suburban, I think general safety is going to push them even harder. So let me, first of all, safety, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, what a shame. Um, and beyond that, the, the lens of a, a little historical perspective, I think I remember early 90s, survived till 95, that downturn, uh, where there was really an urban flight. Uh, there were a lot of companies that left in, in downtown San Diego for suburban San Diego. And the way that remedied itself is that the rents came down in the downtown market. And, you know, the fact is we have these urban centers with these massive office buildings It'll probably be solved in the in the near term by declining rents in the urban centers, and then the deal is so good that the companies are willing to go there again. Uh, so there's some basic economics at play, uh, but over that longer term, I just wonder if there isn't really a civic change occurring. It's really crazy that we have such massive crime issues in most of our CBDs. I mean, like I've yet to talk to somebody that says, "No, this crime is great," like, and this crime is acceptable. Like, literally, I think every person agrees that this crime in these urban areas is completely unacceptable uh, and not a society that we want to trend towards in the future or that's acceptable in the now, yet it, it never gets, never seems to be fixed and doesn't seem to be making progress, at least in Los Angeles where crime rates are the highest they've ever been. Um, I, I tend to agree that it's a supply and demand equation that like in Los Angeles, for example, the buildings in downtown LA are by far uh, amongst the most likely to go into receivership and have an entire equity wipe out and be recast at a much lower valuation where they can do deals at much lower rents. But um, th this, this actually ties right into the new story that I wanted to talk about. Um, and th in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week, there was an article talking about 
the return to office rates for U.S. workers versus European workers and workers in Asia. And th this is pretty surprising. And I think that us Americans tend to have the habit of thinking that the entire world revolves around America and that we're the only people that exist. You know, you're on like a, you know, Reddit uh, forum or something and you forget there's people that don't actually live in America, uh, which is something that I laugh at that is uh, uniquely American. And I think we're all guilty of, but in Europe, the return to office rates are already in the 75 to 80% of what they were before COVID. In Asia, it's more like 80 to 110%, depending on which city you're in. And then the US and most major cities, the return to office rate, like occupancy rate is more around 50%. So you start asking the question of like, why is this happening? And um, of course, in the U.S., people have longer commute times. They tend to have bigger homes. There's less multi-generational housing than there is in Europe and especially less than in Asia. But when you really start analyzing why is this happening, I think, and I'm curious what you all believe too, it is entirely driven or, or majority driven by the unemployment rate. Unemployment rate in the U.S. at the time of our, us recording this is about 3.5%. And the unemployment rate in the EU is 6.1%. So it's it's nearly, you know, approaching double the amount of unemployed as a percentage of population compared to the U.S. And, and that's ultimately what I think is driving people to go back to the office more than anything else. But I'm, I'm curious what you will think. And then once I have answers to that, I have a question for you around what the long-term impact of this is in the U.S. specifically. I like where you're going with that. Maybe it is as simple as a supply and demand equilibrium graph, you know, where the unemployment rate is uh, indicative of the leverage or lack thereof for employees. You know, I think it, there's a maybe a historical correlation to Brian's opening remarks about uh, George Washington bringing cannons in from Ticonderoga to Bunker Hill. You know, we're a very independent nation, and I think some people feel very entitled to their independence. And they feel that they proved to their employer that through the pandemic, they were able to get their job done uh, by being remote. And so why can't they remain remote? Um, I know Starbucks right now in Seattle is facing a lot of, um, they have a lot of frustrated employees that, you know, they asked their people to come back three days a week as of March 1st. And there's now a group of people within the organization that are trying to launch kind of a coup, if you will, um, against that mandate, uh, suggesting they should never have to come in. Um, and yeah, I think if, if unemployment was six or 7%, we'd be having a different discussion. I think those that are fighting the return to work might be, um, a little less heated about it. Um, but I also think that there's companies though, that, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of them that feel that they shouldn't have to, you know, pay people by the hour necessarily by being in the office and rather they pay people by performance. And so I bring this up. Um, not necessary to be a contrarian to the notion that people just don't want to come in, but, you know, we probably have listeners that are run companies or are at, at companies where they're predominantly remote and would suggest to all of us on this panel that they're being paid by performance. And so then it behooves the employer to make sure that the performance metrics that they ask their employees to, to achieve are significant. So if they can get it done in 20 hours a week, you know, wow, that's pretty special. Um, but I think the best companies that are performing in remote must be such where they are asking employees to fill a pretty tall task. Um, and maybe it works. I just, my, back to one of our earlier podcasts, though, 
I don't know how that fits in with culture. I think it's really hard to do that um, remote. And I think that's a big reason why Howard wants people back together at Starbucks. I would say though, Owen, we should be careful with our phrasing. You said that people are fighting return to work. I don't believe people are fighting return to work. They're fighting return to office, right? Of course. Yep, absolutely. And thank you for correcting me on that. Yeah, it, I think my my opinion is in line a lot with what Owen's saying. I think the, I think the unemployment rate and the supply and demand um, leverage on the employee side has a lot to do with it, but I think it's, it's culture. I think having done work in Europe and Asia, uh, the office is much more of a connection to people's who they are and where their companies, um, the Americans are, are more about, about, you know, it's just the American way is just more about the individual. It's more about my performance and the, the performance of the company. Um, and being, being, if I'm doing a good job, I should be able to do it anywhere I want, anytime I want. And my team should, we should figure it out together as a team, rather than having this kind of overarching opinion of leaders that are, that are out of touch with who we are as employees and who we can go work for. Uh, it's just that very independent American approach that saying we're doing a good job, the data supporting it, leave us alone. Yet a lot of times the data doesn't support it. And they don't actually know how productive they're being. The data out there, yeah, people it's, it's, are not, there's no uh, compelling data saying that people are, companies are worse off allowing people to work from home. I think everything's, I think I truly believe that they are too, um, you know, long-term. I think that, I think younger employees are going to have issues with it uh, from a development perspective uh, as well. But those are, those are in the future. Those aren't going to play out for years, I think. Right. I haven't seen any studies that have said if you are not in the office, you're you're going to you know, your company's going to suffer. Maybe I'm wrong, though. One of the things that I wanted to bring this back to. So we talked about longer commute times, uh, less multi-generational housing, uh, bigger homes, all that. I think that there may be a, an additional reason that we haven't talked about of why the U.S. return to office has been uh less fast than it has in Europe and Asia. And I think it is that in many of these urban areas, you're returning to a market that is as um, much less populated than they are in Europe, right? It's like this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, this emptiness of the space creates this negative feedback loop where you're returning to a vacant office building that's depressing, right? And if you're returning to an 80% occupied building or an 80% occupied downtown in Paris, for example, or in New York, you're returning to an environment that's 50% occupied. I think the experience and the energy that you get from being in that environment is very different. And what I don't fully understand is how do we overcome that? Like, how do you get critical mass where it's no longer depressing? Um, one of the interesting things that um, I know we closely followed, uh, you know, during COVID and that we're, you know, I'm closely following now as somebody that does a lot of business in New York City specifically, is that the unemployment rate in New York is actually amongst the highest in the country. And the reason for that is primarily driven by all of the people that work in the retail and service industry in New York, in like the urban part of New York and Manhattan, that no longer have jobs because these shops and restaurants and retail stores and all that have closed. So how do we get back to a point where we have strong town towns when a major encumbrance of that happening is the fact that no one's there and nobody I, wants to I go because no one's and there. I heard a developer one day tell me you know, years ago that you know she was developing uh, 
projects in Seattle, and she was spending an unbelievable amount of time and attention on the ground floor retail. Because she said, if you think about it, buildings are oftentimes defined by those on the ground plane. Um, it's a restaurant that is well known. It's a coffee shop. It could be a host of different services. No, the average person, less us brokers who know her and know who all the tenants are in these buildings, they kind of identify buildings by those who are that on, that on the ground floor, your average person, okay? And that is what it takes. It's so important to have an activated ground floor retail to activate the building, to your point. I mean, yes, it helps to have people in the building, but without anyone on the ground floor, you walk in and it's kind of depressing. You know, case in point, we are, our office is in one of the nicest, if not the nicest buildings in downtown Seattle. Gorgeous. Um, it's predominantly vacant. And during, the, uh, during COVID, every retailer left the building, just threw the keys back. And so we are in a building that's 900,000 square feet that has zero retail, none. It's all closed. We have a bank, sorry, Chase Bank is on a corner, but they don't serve any food or coffee. And it's so like Tucker. I mean, it's like, it's a, when you come downtown, um, it's quiet, no retail, and then not to mention your office building is empty. It's hard to be inspired. Yeah, I agree. Oh, and are you saying get the Starbucks on your ground floor closed? Gone. Oh, brutal. I would go to that every time I would come to your office. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes back to the article I was talking about. The retailers are only going to go. It's a it's the chicken and the egg, right? It's Retailers are going to be there. The employees are going to be there, and the employees aren't coming. So what comes back first? You get the employees downtown. I mean, I have a very, very, very smart, forward-thinking client. They've, they're in the process of they've master leased a large project, uh, like almost 200,000 feet. And because of the return to work reality, the building's under construction. They've now repurposed with their base building contractor as they're building it to take the 60,000 square foot first floor and to turn it into uh, mixed-use retail. So they're going to do a daycare. They're going to do some sort of a fitness. They're going to do a coffee shop. They're going to do all these other uses, uh, restaurant. They may do uh, some physio, something like that, to bring their people back. But also, they uh, they know that they're not going to be able to fill it, right? So they're trying to think forward, like you were talking, Owen, and say, okay, how do we how do we provide an amenity, uh, recoup some cost, uh, obviously, but how do we get our people to be happier and more activated and coming back downtown to the building? So. For, for any landlords listening to this podcast, I would suggest you give the retail space away, seriously, at least for a period of time or do a percentage rent so that a coffee shop, a sandwich shop, a restaurant could come in, activate your ground plane. Um, and once the building fills up, then sure, maybe renegotiate the lease. Um, but you've got to get your retail activated if you want people to get excited about your building. By the way, that daycare element, genius. Yeah, it's, it's, they do they very, very forward-thinking group and impressive the way that they, they got internal approvals to go in that direction, right? Uh, but Tucker, the other part of this whole thing is how people work. And, and this may not be a U.S. versus international um, issue. It could just be a U.S. issue. But um, I was on the phone with the director of real estate the other day, and they were having a a day-long session on this exact topic. How do we reactivate our space and bring people back to work? And she said, at the very beginning of the meeting, I, I, made, I made the call. We're going to stop talking about how to make the space better. We have to start talking about how we're going to change how people work. Because if I was to pull most of the employees at the company and look at their schedules, every, every single meeting, regardless if you're going to be in the office or remote, 
has a Zoom link to it. So I have people come in, we have people come into the office and instead of going and having a conference room on the invite, there's a Zoom link because there's always somebody remote. And then everyone ends up doing the call from their cube or office anyway. So you've got eight hours of Zoom meetings. Are you going to do this at your house or do them in the office? And until we change how people work and get people back to saying, if you're in the office, you're going to get up from your desk and you're going to go meet together. We're not going to change anything. Uh, which I thought was a very interesting perspective. It's not about the real estate. It's about leadership and management and how they how they allow their people to work or support their people to work. I think that's a perfect segue for me to share my, my news story. Um, so I, this is from CBS News, and uh, maybe it seems super obvious, but Google Cloud came out with, well, let me step back. Google broadly fired 12,000 people in January, right? Uh, they've announced they're going to take a $500 million hit uh, in the re real estate restructuring that they're doing. Uh, but there's this division, Google Cloud, and they've come up with a strategy to address the hybrid work world. And at first I thought, well, that's pretty basic. Uh, that's not that innovative. It's desk sharing. And, and the more I th thought about this, the more I actually think it's genius, for, at least for me. So the desk sharing is the idea that you partner up, you know, with for example, one person, and you coordinate schedules that Google Cloud is saying they want each person in at least two days a week. But the, the, the hard reality is that even when people are fully occupying space, it's sitting unoccupied, underutilized much of the time. So to have one partner, think about it for me, how much better that would be than hot desking where you're coming in and you don't know where you're going to be for the day. And maybe that's a deterrent to even wanting to show up. But I like having my desk. I like having my office and I wouldn't mind in the least to share it with somebody else, coordinate schedules ahead of time. I thought it was genius partnering, desk sharing. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. You know what else is a genius idea is like having a fax machine on my desk. So I don't have to go to the printer when an email comes in or a message comes in, it's right there on the fax. Like honestly, it's, it's laughable to me. Like, the concept of hot desking and desk sharing is partnering, but based on technology and utilization and, and you can, you can reduce it to the size of your team. You can reduce it to two people, three people, 10 people. You can start to really look at data and analytics around utilization and location. Um, it's, there's just so many really good products in, in processes that could go behind how you use space that's so much more innovative than desk sharing, which was, you know, which was a, a, a great idea in the, in the early 2000s before technology came into the space. That's my opinion. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that that's their approach. Well, look, all, all things old or new again, right? Uh, but I wanted to do a little footnote to this story because uh, uh, getting ready for the pod and Nick Willis, our architect, uh, walk by and I'm like, hey, hey, Nick, come in, come in. I'm, I'm, I'm going to share a news story about Google Cloud and they have this new desk sharing concept. What do you think? Like, are you talking about that with clients? And he said, being the genius that he is, he's like, yes, but, you know, that means an 80% person needs to pair up and match with a 20% person. A 40% person should pair and match up with a 60% person. Like, we need to find the symmetry so that the office is... There's no overlap and we're seeking 100% where we can. Anyway, I thought that was a brilliant add to the story. And here's my main point. I wouldn't have had that if Nick hadn't walked by. He's in the office. I'm in the office. That's what happens. I wouldn't have 
texted him. I wouldn't have called him to have that. He just happened to walk by, and I thought to ask him, and I had a new little bullet point to add to the pod. It's important for companies to remember that a perfectly efficient office from a space utilization standpoint, design standpoint, does not necessarily mean it is a perfect office, right? Like as we're talking through this, I worry that our company is losing sight of what is really most important, right? Which is creating an environment where people want to come to work, they're excited to come to work, you know, creating a high utility environment for collaboration, innovation, um, you know, pulling people back in. And that doesn't mean that you have to have perfect utilization of all of the space at all, right? In fact, I think that by having perfect utilization of the space, it's probably a leading indicator that your space isn't good, right? And it's too data-driven, um, too uh, intentionally designed, and doesn't allow these team members to have their own space and their own community. Imagine if you know you live in a like nice, nice neighborhood and on a cul-de-sac, and you know all your neighbors, they've all lived there for a decade. And imagine now that half the time, that, that group of people is different. You know, one day your next door neighbor is a different person, and then the house next to you is different. But then on different days, it's different people. Like the ecosystem is constantly changing, and it doesn't allow you to create this sort of chemistry of your uh, neighborhood within your floor or within your office. And I think that ultimately, the workplace is a spot for the team to come together to win and to collaborate, to get to know one another, to enjoy one another, and of course, to be productive and get work done. And that by doing these hot desking solutions, of course, they work for some companies, but for many, I think it's defeating the purpose of even coming to the office at all. That, that's a, let me say one thing, because you just, are you familiar with the company Picasso? Uh, pretty interesting, innovative, fractional ownership of, uh, you know, mountain homes or vacation homes down to one eighth um, ownership units. Pretty interesting, really, because most of the time those vacation homes are sitting empty anyway. But here's the point that the homeowners and adjacent neighbors are resisting it. They don't like the idea that they don't know their neighbor. It's the point you were just making. Well, it's a, to me, it's akin to how do you want to run your office? Do you want to, and there's no right or wrong. Uh, you can either run it like an airline and make sure that every seat is full on every single day. Um, airlines consistently oversell their planes, which is why sometimes you get an email saying, hey, do you want to give up your seat for a $50 coupon or whatever? Or do you want to create an environment where people are like, look, this is kind of where I want to be. And if it's a little too much space on some days, that's okay. Because it's our home. Um, why do people buy homes that are bigger than they necessarily need? Because they want the space, right? Maybe they have an extra bedroom or two. Not the end of the world for some. So I guess my point is, is that people love to talk about data-driven analytics and space utilization and how they can reduce your overall cost per employee which is all important, don't get me wrong, but I have plenty of clients that just don't care that much as others do and would tell me or an architect that was presenting to them or a workplace strategist, but that's all, that's all great. I love your ideas. That's, that's great. I love the innovation, but we're just not going to adhere to that because that's not the type of environment we want for our people. And not to mention some of these companies make so much money that what might seem like a lot of money to you to spend on real estate in reality uh, is not that much money uh, for them. And so I just kind of, yeah, uh, so I agree. And I think that can, you can overshoot this whole concept and you, I, I akin it to like, Hey, we're going to go uh, open plan versus, versus closed office. And a lot of companies overshot that and they went way too far. And you have these offices that weren't conducive to their work style. 
but the 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 science in in space is is very different right so you can set utilization numbers you can uh at what you want like pre-pandemic a full office may have been 70 to 80 percent that's full right you didn't have you never got to 100 percent. you could do the same thing now it's really about instead of having it be at the responsibility of you know john and i to partner on space it's around technology. So you can you can look at in your team, say you're a team of 20 people, you could have a particular portion of a, of a floor plan, right? And, and you have access to all of those space there. You have access to space on how you work. It's not about having an office or a cube. It's today I'm going to be in a team. I need a team room for six people. I need to know which team rooms for six people are, are open. All technology driven. Right. Your furniture systems can change. So I know Technion has systems that go that are very flexible. So the configuration of an office based on a project can change. So if you're not utilizing the technology to try to activate before, it used to be all about cost savings, cost savings, cost savings. Right. How do we get smaller and smaller? Now it's how do we activate our space to provide an environment that's has energized, that's efficient in aligns to how people want to work when they're at the office. No one's coming to the office anymore to work at a desk. They're coming to the office to meet with their coworkers, to collaborate and work on projects together. They're coming to for social engagement, like total social engagement, right? Or they're, they're doing mentoring or some other um, collaborative type in, uh, inter, interaction. It's really about that now. It's not about, hey, I'm going to share my desk with John and you come on Monday, I come on Tuesday. That to me is just, it's, that's a dinosaur. Yeah, quick news article for me. I mean, last week there was a sensational headline talking about how by the end of the decade, we could see 1.4 billion square feet of office space become obsolete. Um, just to give you an idea of how much space that is, on average, prior to the pandemic, we typically had about 330 million square feet of vacant office space in America. Okay, so this is like four times the average amount of vacancy our country has had uh, prior to 2020. Um, another example is, you know, Manhattan has 450 million square feet of office space. If you include the boroughs, it's more like 600 million square feet. So essentially two times the amount of office space that exists in all of New York and the boroughs could become obsolete. And what they mean by obsolete and older buildings um, that fall into this category are those dating back to being built before 2014, those that have not been remodeled. Um, since 2020, um, 300 million square feet of tenants have moved out of those buildings. doesn't mean they've gone remote. Some maybe have, uh, but they've moved out and found other solutions for their organizations. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, because as you probably know, leases are signed for a period of three to 10 years. And so there's probably a tremendous amount of leases yet to expire in these uh, buildings that some may, many consider to be obsolete that have yet to uh, hit the market and potentially relocate. So I just think like you, you look at some of these buildings and their floor plates are so large, they don't yield purposes for a future multifamily. Um, and some are even wondering what, what happens? Do they just get demolished and do we build a city park or do we do something? I don't, I don't know. Um, but something's going to happen or they're just going to sit there as vacant relics of the past. Um, because if occupancy in office space across the country does not start to surge right now, it's about 50%. Um, where's the demand for these buildings? There isn't any, that's the answer. Um, 
And with rents continuing to fall precipitously, you're going to continue to see that flight to quality. And it's a big question mark. And I don't have the answer. Nobody does. I mean, we all have crystal balls and have our own hypothesis of what the future looks like. But for those buildings that are old and dated, and we all know what those look like, um, it's a dire scenario. I mean, I don't see the path of opportunity for those those buildings. And I imagine we're going to start to see a lot of defaults. What if these buildings in New York think 80-story, completely obsolete high-rise turn into last-mile delivery for drones? Yeah. Should we uh, should we start a giant real estate private equity platform to go make this idea happen? Uh, you know, thirty <laughs> years prematurely. You're thinking. I mean, that's the type of creativity where someone's going to need to have to make use of some of these buildings. I'm, I'm, I, I honestly don't. I don't think it's that far off, Tucker. I think using it for for last mile drone delivery on an eighty story building just uh, you might as well knock it down. But I was sitting with a major landlord a number of years ago, and they. They they own one of the largest underground, not the largest, not one of the, they own the largest network of underground parking across the United States, right? And at the time, they were in discussions with large retailers to turn it into last mile warehouse space. So we get delivered into the parking, they create um, the ability to raise it up into buildings, into the street boxes, however that network would work. But uh, just in Boston, there's something like 16 acres of underground parking. Imagine that being a massive warehouse. Okay, I've got another. Yeah, maybe drones, maybe drones. How about this? Uh, cut, uh, you know, an opening between the floors to the extent that the structural framework will allow it. Vertical farming. Realty Income just pledged a billion dollars in partnership with Plenty to deploy vertical farming. Well, so why build new structures? Let's cut the floor plate where we can, turn those things into vertical farms. What do you think? It's a, it, John, you stole my idea. I got to tell you, I'm a little upset right now. I'm on the floor. I was just meeting with a vertical farm and on the heels of that, of that article. And uh, they only need 12 feet to build a farm, right? So it, you may have to, some of these buildings, I mean, in Boston, if you got 12 feet, 14 feet is more like it. You're, try, you're trying to move it to make it a lab building. But if you don't, or you're right there, take out every other floor, turn it into a vertical farm. It's the water use isn't that high, the electricity use isn't that high. Um, you know, it's, I think that I think that there's going to be innovation, but I think there's going to be mass carnage before we get to that point because they want they want just just so you know they want electricity ra- uh, rates at five cent a kilowatt hour or less. The average rates across the country are two to three times that. So, you know, how does it, how, how do you make it economically viable, even if you're giving the real estate away? I don't think you can. Okay. That's enough about us opining on the future of office conversions. Uh, maybe we can do a future episode about uh, what happens to these buildings, what happens to other obsolete real estate over time. Uh, but for today's episode, episode six, it's time to talk about data analytics for the workplace and how that should impact decisions. Uh, Brian, I know you've got a couple topics you want to jump in with, so why don't you why don't you go for it? Yeah, I think we should just eschew all data analytics and just share desks again. <laughs> there we go. Well, with that, should we wrap up the podcast? <laughs> I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Drop the mic. No, I think I, I think 
uh, having worked with um, some really innovative companies in helping other companies figure this out. So A&E firms, the, the technology that's come into uh, the property space is amazing. And there's a lot of players in it. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of great ideas without good execution. There's a lot of companies that are going to be acquired or just go away. But I think at the, at the, at the base of it, the three, three areas that really excite me the most are around how we measure utilization. I mean, the, the easiest way, which used to be really hard, uh, by the way, was getting badge data. Right. So the easiest way is badge data. Someone badges in, make the assumption that they're in the office. Um, you know, I had a client I was sitting with and they said, well, Brian, that's great. But we have a really great we have really great uh, amenities at the space. So we think a lot of our employees are coming into our office to use our amenities, go to the gym, use the cafeteria and then they're leaving. So we're not really sure how that's a good measure of uh, utilization. Uh, the second one really is around uh, sensors, right? So you get sensors in conference rooms, sensors on seats, sensors at desks. Uh, and the third one that I think is really exciting that, that companies are doing is um, Bluetooth data. So then you can start to really get uh, the clustering and concentrations of data through using, uh, I guess you'd call it metadata around um the Bluetooth connectivity to phones. So you start to really understand, because I think the way that we get out of this, um, this period of really uncertainty around how we're gonna, how we're gonna change our offices, the size of our offices, how we're gonna start using desks, is, it, is data. How do we get data so companies can make informed decisions on how they wanna be for the next five to 10 years? And data is it, and how people use space, not just how they show up, but actually how they use the space when they're there. Instead of making assumptions, okay, we need amenities in our space. Maybe it's not amenities that get people to the office, but data is going to help us figure that out. And I think there's some really good companies out there right now that are, that are looking at utilization um, and, and drilling in on it. So I have one more notion I want to add as it comes to vacancy rate versus availability rate versus occupancy versus utilization. Um, because even that company that's fully occupying their space and utilizing it 50% of the time, they're only using it, say, from eight to six, like that's 10 hours out of a 24 hour day. So that's 41.6%. So really, we're talking about like 20%, 80% of the time, the asset's sitting there underutilized. That's a lot of underutilized asset. And I'm not saying that we should then be going to multiple shifts and working 24 hours a day. But I was going to make the point that when someone's working from home, when they're working, the space is utilized. When they shift to being at home mode, the space is utilized. There's not that implicit lack of productivity, lack of utilization of the real estate. Maybe that's an argument for in favor of remote work. Don't get me wrong. I still think we're going back to the office because we get the culture of the team and we're having fun together. And those teams are going to win in a competitive marketplace. And maybe there's a small argument to be made for remote work as it relates to the utilization of the real estate because uh, it's not idle throughout the course of the day. What do you think? Well, and I, I've seen the software, I have clients that use it. Um, and it's great to see kind of what spaces are activated, what's not. But for anyone that's like in present day occupancy mode that wants to try this out, it doesn't work unless everybody comes in. So like you could, you could have all the sensors installed today and that's all wonderful. But if only 20% of your staff is coming in three days a week, you're not gonna get good data. So it might be such where as a leader, you have to 
say to your team, hey, I want to create a space for the future, one that is accretive to our culture and what we're trying to achieve. But in order to do that, I need you to you know, join me on this journey for the next four weeks or three weeks and be here on these three days a week or whatever it might be. So I can see how we're using space and create a more efficient office, maybe a more efficient portfolio um, and identify which amenities and space types people actually prefer to use. And John, I think that's a great idea how your client, you know, reconfigured furniture and so forth to see if, how that changed behavior. Um, but unless you can see how people are interacting with spaces so you can design based on that behavior and people are in the office to do so, all the technology in the world is not going to solve this for you. Um, but love it all if you can if you can use it as the as it's meant to be used. I think it's important to think about what the goal is with real estate data too, right? Like for me, when we're, when I'm working with companies, advising companies on what they should do, the things that I'm focused on are how do you create the highest utility environment for your team? How do you save money? And how do you predict and prepare for future changes and how the team works? Like those are the three things for me that I think are most important for companies to be focused on when they're considering considering the data analytics around how they work. And my question for you all is, in capturing this data, we all know that badge reader, reader um, access is a very limited data set. I mean, there have been instances where some companies have such amazing amenities like a gym or food, where people come in literally just to use the gym, don't even work, and then leave. So we all know that badge data has very... Uh, limited application or has high potential for errors. So what do you all what do you all tell a director of real estate that's trying to come up with a more data-driven approach to analyzing how their space is used? Like what what should they be doing? Okay. I will answer the question. I think that the holy grail of data analytics for companies, and let me preface this by saying there are a lot of companies that do not need to do this because the way they utilize the real estate is changing so rapidly. But for a lot of companies, the best pathway to having great data on your workplace is using density sensors. And having anonymized sensors within your workplace that show which features of the space are being used, what is the utilization rate, at what hours are utilization rates the highest, uh, this type of detailed analysis is like immutable. It's based on real data. You can break it out, you know, by hour, by day of the week. Um, it's anonymized, so the team doesn't feel like they're being spied on or something like that. It doesn't have the same uh, data fallibility that badger, badger reader uh, access does, and that's what we see a lot of these companies that are trying to make a really thoughtful decision around the future of their workplace doing. Um, let me give an example of how, how you might use this. Um, say that you're a 100,000 square foot law firm and you've always been in the same office for the last 10 years and you're finally coming up for expiration on your lease and you have no idea how's the space being utilized, headcount's about the same, you have about the same amount of associates and partners, you need about the same amount of offices. How do you, where do you start? You can go and install these density sensors in your space, get really robust analytics on your space over a six-month period, and then use that analytics in order to make a better decision on how you right-size your space. Should you be in more? Should you be in less? What areas should you cut? Do you have enough medium-sized conference rooms? Do you have enough large? Do you need more phone booths? What do you need? 
And being able to find an immutable data source to make these decisions off of is really important. But getting back to what we were talking about earlier, data only takes you so far, right? Data is only a snapshot of where the company is at right now. What are the trends today? And if you're going to force everyone to come back to the office with a much higher rate or change the constraints you put around how people work in the office, you need to expect the data to change. So you can't make a five, 10 year commitment based off of a snapshot of data that might not be relevant for the long term. I'm curious if you will have any other thoughts on that. I would agree that you can't base your 10-year horizon off of data you collected in you know, 2022 and expect that's going to be consistent to 2032. So there probably needs to be a regular check-in. Um, but the thing that those density sensors don't do um, is they don't tell you what you're missing. So yes, it's going to show you what portions of the space are being highly utilized, those which are not. It might lead you to believe that there might be areas that need to be enhanced um, or eliminated, but it's not showing you that, oh my gosh, if I had this, whatever this may be, maybe there'd be a tremendous amount of util utilization of that as well. So I think there's a combination of like, yes, use the data. There's obviously priceless information that can be uh, gleaned from the, those results, but I think it's also listening to your team. What exactly do they want? Um, if, if they're going to join you on this journey to come back to the office, even if it's on some hybrid schedule of, of, to be determined, what is it that would um, get them excited about coming back? And for some of those things, it's not even just the space itself. It might be location-based. And what, that's when you're going to look at data for commute patterns and transit time and so forth. I mean, there's there's that whole notion of like the hub and spoke model where some companies are trying to get closer to where their people are versus just making them come into these congested downtowns. So I, there's a lot there, um, but I think there's... There's, it's not one size fits all solution, just picking a piece of software. Great point on, it doesn't specifically tell you what you might be missing, right? But what it does tell you is what you need more of and what you need less of. And in a large scale office, when you think of things that may not exist at all on the floor plan, right? Like, I'm curious what specifically you're talking about. I mean, on one hand, it's like, gosh, if we had a rock climbing gym, maybe everyone would love the rock climbing gym. But from a practical standpoint, I think that the vast majority of these workplaces are probably going to have 95% of the different features or rooms or like utility areas that they will have in the future, regardless of what the data says. They may just have more or less. But yeah, there there is a you know 5% or something of a space that they might not have that maybe they greatly benefit by. And of course, the data is not going to tell you that explicitly. The piece that I really wanted to talk about is... Something that's be I'm seeing when we start to look at data around uh, location. So you know the simple thing is zip code analyses, right? But there's a lot more to that around existing footprints, where people are. I've seen what the expectation was for an existing office. This is where we've been for the last X number of years, ten years. Our people all kind of live and work around here. Over the last you know the pandemic, over the last three five years, I've seen. Um, it seems to me the data is supporting that people have really started to pick up and move. And it doesn't mean they move to another state. We all read about that happening. But they move within their, within their uh, metropolitan area. So we're getting zip code analyses back to think that people live in a certain area and that's why the office is there. We get data back to say, no, people aren't there anymore. This is They've all shifted or they've spread out or there's another story to be told. And then secondly, 
start laying in where our future employee wants to come from because there's been a real shift in a lot of metro areas on where the people that that company is trying to attract lives. They used to all live in the urban market. Now they all live in XYZ market, right? So um, there's some real good analytics around location uh, for for employees that I think is really important to get ahead of for our, our, our listeners because it has changed more now than I think it's ever changed in my career. Okay, we are running out of time in today's episode. <clears throat> we're, we're also planning to talk quite a bit about how to apply these same type of principles to industrial and manufacturing space, warehousing, logistics, all that. Um, a couple of things that I'll just note, and then uh, in some future episode, we'll do a deeper dive on this. Creating efficiency in industrial real estate settings is really closely tied to lean manufacturing principles. And a lot of times the optimization of a logistics space or a manufacturing line is going to be handled uh, by a consultant or a director of manufacturing who's working in close uh, partnership with the director of real estate. But the things that uh, are very much in the wheelhouse of the majority of companies that might not have that type of manufacturing expertise internally is looking at dock door utilization, receiving productivity and accuracy, like uh, you know, getting the right materials into the right spot in the warehouse, inventory turnover, uh, truck time at docks. And there's a lot of these other metrics that are very low hanging fruit that you can get with just simple camera data um, and you know, in, a, in a short amount of input, input hours too, or even using AI to automate some of these things. How long was that truck at the door and all that? So uh, given that we're running out of time, we'll have a follow-up episode on this down the line talking about how to create additional efficiency in warehouses. Um, one topic that I wanted to, to briefly cover that I find incredibly interesting is this idea of uh, CoStar's monopoly in corporate real estate. Um, for those that are not brokers that you know don't regularly work with CoStar, uh, they have a absolute monopoly on the commercial version of the multiple listing service. Uh, there is not a market, or I should say there are very few markets in the country and probably zero major markets in the country where CoStar is not the primary data source for brokers. And CoStar's done a ton of good. I mean, they've been an amazing force in the corporate real estate world in terms of organizing information, making uh, identifying spaces and site selection much easier than it was before when people were calling around by the phone. But it raises a question when we're talking about data analytics uh, and real estate analytics in general, what could displace CoStar? This is something that a lot of brokers talk about. I think it's easy to hate on the you know, current monopoly and the current uh, archetype of how real estate data is sourced. And of course, could CoStar's product be better? 100%. Is it really expensive? Yes. Uh, that doesn't mean it's bad. And I think it's really important to recognize all of the good that CoStar has done to make brokers' lives much, much better. But something that I think about often is how could that, how could they be disrupted, right? This is a $20 billion market cap publicly traded company doing everything it possibly can to defend its foothold in this industry, what could happen to disintermediate CoStar and allow a competitor to emerge when there's massive network effects that exist in terms of aggregating this data onto the platform? So I'd love to hear what you all think. I have my own answer. I think that there actually is a very real path to disintermediating CoStar from a current company that's already at scale. Uh, 
But before yeah. I go into that, I'm curious I, what you want I think they absolutely do have a monopoly. Um, many would agree with me. Um, in fact, you bring up a, uh, it's very timely because recently, I think it was like a week or two ago, um, CoStar actually defeated Crexy uh, in a U.S. court uh, antitrust claims. Um, Crexy, which is uh, C-R-E-X, lowercase i, uh, which stands for Commercial Real Estate Exchange Incorporated, was claiming that the CoStar has spent billions of dollars buying up and elbowing out any sort of competitor that comes into their space. Um, and they are trying to, you know, keep any company like Crexy or others uh, from scaling. Now, that being said, there is another company that I believe is scaling and in my own opinion, provides a better product, uh, which is called BTS. Um, and you can Google it, just bts.com. And they are probably the next in line. If there is one competitor out there that could effectively give CoStar a run for their money, it would be BTS. But the issue is, is that, uh, as many of our listeners know, our world of commercial real estate is not like residential. It's not all public record. And so it's it benefits the landlords when tenants don't actually know what is being transacted or, or what's behind the curtain, for lack of better words. Um, it's And so if we need, in my opinion, um, someone to at least keep CoStar honest and competitive with the marketplace, because right now, as as any broker that's listening to this call knows, or podcast rather, or any tenant that uses CoStar, there really isn't any other solution. There once was, it was called LoopNet, but CoStar bought them. And now it's CoStar LoopNet. They kept the brand. Um, but anyway, long story short, I totally agree with you, Tucker. And I'm closely watching BTS to see how they progress. Yeah, I, I agree. I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, having started my career when CoStar was you know, a startup, uh, it's hard to call them a monopoly because they did it they did it the right way from the ground up, right? They, they went and did what, um, you know, what a startup does. They started small and, and grew and, and became a behemoth in the industry. And I think there's two ways that they, um, they get supplanted in, in the business is first is landlords stop using them. And, um, I don't know if it's across the entire country, but the largest office landlord in the world, Boston properties does not use CoStar for any of their listings in Boston. Um, they've, they've stopped putting all their availabilities on, on there. And if that was to snowball, they would be a real, um, concerned about the reliability of the data on CoStar, obviously, and that would hurt their credibility in the market. I think secondly, um, I think AI and technology, I had a broker overseas ask me if I've ever run a survey using AI technology because they're starting to get into it. Um, and I think, you know, for us, the space is the commodity. The value is in the process we run and our ability to to uh, understand the goals and objectives of our client and align them to the marketplace. The space is the commodity and it's becoming more and more of a commodity. And we don't need CoStar as tenant rep brokers as much as landlord brokers need it to get their space into the marketplace. So so I think as the market shifts and more space becomes available, I think, uh, I think we're gonna have um, more players enter in a much more um, user-friendly way like VTS, which is an awesome product. Uh, that's going to create hopefully some some competition, probably market to market at first, and then hopefully at a at a higher level. And the question is, well, who cares, right? For as tenant rep brokers, who cares? That's that's really what what I I'd, I'd like to turn it on you, Tucker. Like, why do we care? 
Let me take a shot at this. I like what you said, Brian, um, and I'm gonna go further. So space is a commodity, yes. Do you know what else is a commodity? Information. And a little bit of a history lesson, like you, when CoStar first came on the scene, what I remember is that the largest full service brokerage companies, you can fill in whatever initials you are thinking of, all resisted CoStar. They were, they were threatened by the CoStar model. This idea like, um, and especially the LoopNet, uh, if, because they were trading in information largely. Like you need us as your agents to find the buildings. If you can find these buildings on your own, then what role for us? And I remember thinking like, no, that's really sort of dinosaur thinking because welcome to the internet age, the information is ubiquitous. And the challenge for a real estate advisor is to say, okay, they don't need us to find the, the real estate anymore. So what role do we now play? What's the value we add other than finding the property? So ultimately what I think would replace, will replace a licensed closed system like a CoStar is going to be information that's publicly available. And it's almost going to be like the tide. It's going to be impossible to hold it back. Somebody's going to figure out how to monetize that, monetize the LoopNet version, which like you say, CoStar bought and they've kind of just let it languish, which is a problem because people go online and think they found information and it hasn't been updated in two years. But the this whole idea that the brokerage community at large was once threatened by allowing the information to be publicly available. I think we need to move beyond that. And as good brokers, we need to be adding value other than finding the real estate. That's what this place is when this information all becomes publicly available. But I want to make one thing clear for those that don't really understand CoStar, like those that tenor brokers that we do, right? So CoStar in itself, for someone in my role serving my clients, it's a platform that landlords use to promote their availability. So to John and Brian's point, kind of a commodity. The reason I think VTS has an opportunity to uh, compete with CoStar and in some cases maybe outperform is VTS is not just a place where landlords like say Boston Properties can put their space on that website to show people what's available. It's an asset management and leasing platform built to serve those landlords to manage their portfolios. And so some might suggest, and I don't, I'm not, I don't know a landlord, I don't own buildings, but some might suggest, well, why are we paying to put properties on CoStar if we're already using them in VTS to manage our real estate, manage our leasing, manage the performance of our portfolio? If VTS can simply take all that information that we're giving them already, because we're using them to manage our real estate and give it to the people for free, so they see our properties, then why would someone need CoStar? And so that's, I think, where, just for those listeners that don't understand what we're talking about, that's what I'm watching so closely. Because I agree, the information should be free. It's a commodity. It's like, to see what house is for sale in your neighborhood, who cares? You still will hire a broker, my, my guess is, to help you negotiate the purchase or the sale of that home. But just simply knowing, is the house for sale? And if so, what's the price? Who cares? If you tell me that that's like unique, you're living in the dark ages. <laughs> so that's, that's old school. That's the dinosaur in the room, if you will. The reason VTS could create a monopoly for itself, similar to what a CoStar monopoly is today, is because of all of the data that they have. They have access to every single comp of every single landlord that is on their platform. And if they can figure out how to anonymize the comp data and then say that you only get the anonymized comp data if you opt in and you are a VTS asset management customer, Otherwise, you can't get it. You can't even buy it. Then all of a sudden, they will probably have a 100% market share 
on their asset management platform. Now they're capturing the entirety of a private market, right? All leases are private record, right? If it's a publicly traded company, you might have some footnotes in, you know, uh, item B of their 10K, but that's it, right? Like that's the only information that's going to be reported. It's not going to be the rent or it might be the expiration and square footage, but that's it. So if you can figure out how to capture all of the private lease comp data in the world and anonymize the data and suggest what pricing should be, then all of a sudden everyone's going to use that and they're going to have all of the availability already there and landlords won't even need brokers to put space on CoStar and brokers will go to VTS instead. Um, this is the single biggest potential disintermediation of our industry that can happen. And imagine if a landlord could reliably say, look, this is the average of all of our comp data. This is a fair price based on everything else going on in the market. Every lease that's been made in the last hundred leases or in the last three months, that's a potential future that VTS could build. Um, and that would completely turn the industry on its head, um, much more so for listing brokers and co-star than it would for tenant focused brokers who do a lot more than just say, Hey, here are the comps. Um, you know, if people wanted to get a market deal, um, that's easy to do, but it's much harder to find the right space at the right price and negotiate a better than market deal that is aligned with your, your company's uh, overall business strategy. Well, think about this too, right? So um, if you're a tenement broker and you're presenting to maybe one of our listeners and you're promoting to them that you're an expert in downtown Seattle office space or Inland Empire distribution warehouse facilities. Um, I know that those of you on this, my panelists here would all be telling the truth in terms of their expertise, but I can tell you implicitly that in our industry, there's a lot of embellishments as to what a broker uh, may or may not have done or transacted or where they may or may not be an expert. Imagine if you had access to the data, if you're a tenant and you have access to data on BTS to see, has Owen Rice ever done a lease in downtown Seattle? Does he do a lot of them? Does he do a little of them? Um, and are, is he representing the landlord or is he representing the tenant? Imagine having transparency into the those that are serving the industry as to the person that's sitting across the table from you that you're considering potentially hiring. Um, imagine if that person, you, you knew implicitly the transaction history and where their expertise actually lied. And then imagine if it was peer reviewed or, not, or customer reviewed, sorry, not peer, customer. So for example, after um, a transaction, the customer actually has the ability to go in and review you publicly, a star rating, I don't know. Um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity there, whether that takes hold or not, I don't know. So I just wanna say this about lease comps. Uh, I'm not a big fan of lease comps. I know they serve a role. They're not the same as a sale comp. There's so many dynamic elements in the lease comps. Maybe it's an up to, uh, 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 topic for a future podcast, but you know, my mindset is there's no such thing as market rent. Uh, there's way too many variables. There's way too many outliers I've seen over the course of my career. And these lease comps that are six months old and negotiated by, and, you know, signed three months before that and negotiated by some other broker, I'm not gonna trust them. It's like looking in the rearview mirror. I wanna look at the front. I wanna be a market maker in driving, driving the uh, market rent. So I'm not a big fan of lease comps generally but all these other data elements that the VTS can capture sound really intriguing. Okay, there you have it from John Jarvis himself. He is a market maker, not a market taker. Definitely advice that all companies should follow as they consider negotiating real estate leases and maximizing their real estate portfolios. That concludes episode six. 
We will be back in two weeks with episode seven and another great topic for you all. Thanks for listening.